Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Happy Area History. I'm your host, Professor Natalie Harpin, and today I wanted to talk about a very important document that I think a lot of people probably have never heard of before. So you may have heard of the Monroe Doctrine, which was passed in 1823, but what I wanted to talk about today was actually the Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, and that was passed in 1904. So my plan is, is to just read you this exercise from it and then we'll discuss it and what it means for the context of U.S. relations within, you know, Latin America and the Caribbean. So, quote, chronic wrongdoing or an impotence which results in a general loosening of the ties of civilized society may in America as elsewhere ultimately require an event intervention by some civilized nation. And in the Western Hemisphere, the adherence of the United States to the Monroe Doctrine may force the United States, however reluctantly, in flagrant cases of such wrongdoing or impotence, to the exercise of an international police power. If every country washed by the Caribbean Sea would show the progress in stable and just civilization, which with the aid of the Platt Amendment Cuba has shown since our troops left the island, and which so many of the republics in both Americas are constantly and brilliantly showing, all question of interference by this nation with their affairs would be at an end. Our interests and those of our southern neighbors are in reality identical. They have great natural riches, and if within their borders the reign of law and justice obtains, prosperity is sure to come to them. While they thus obey the primary laws of civilized society, they may rest assured that they will be treated by us in a spirit of cordial and helpful sympathy. We would interfere with them only in the last resort, and then only if it became evident that their inability or unwillingness to do justice at home and abroad had violated the rights of the United States or had invited foreign aggression to the detriment of the entire body of American nations. It is a mere truism to say that every nation, whether in America or anywhere else, which desires to maintain its freedom, its independence, must ultimately realize that the right of such independence cannot be separated from the responsibility of making good use of it. So I know that that was a lot, (laughs) but... Essentially, the summary is that the United States is speaking directly to the countries within Latin America and the Caribbean, which is why you heard them say the Americas, which is something that we've talked about on the podcast already. But they're saying that, you know, if you invite any foreign country to intervene on your behalf here in the in this hemisphere, we'll intervene if you don't practice justice and law the way we would have it in the United States, then we'll interfere. But that if, you know, you act as a civilized society would, then you have absolutely no worry that we will invade your country. Now, I guess I should contextualize what the Monroe Doctrine is. So the Monroe Doctrine was a piece of, you know, legislation that the United States did 
that essentially told the European powers that they were not to interfere anymore in this hemisphere. So the idea is that, especially because this is 1823, so the United States is trying to actively continue out west, right? That's part of that timeline. We haven't yet gotten the Western territory that used to be, you know, half of the northern half of Mexico. It hasn't been acquired by the U.S. as a result of the Mexican-American War yet. That's another 20 years out from this time period. But the U.S. knows that they want to build their navy. They want to build their army. They want to essentially have their they want to have access to colonize other people. And because the United States is, you know, even still considered a relatively young nation, especially then, right? It wasn't even to hunt. It wasn't even a hundred years old yet. They feel like they're behind the game, and which which is you know funny because that's the story of the English in this hemisphere. Right? They were sort of last to colonize in this hemisphere, also. But Europe had already sort of colonized much of the areas in the old world, right? So between Asia, Africa the you know Indian Ocean trade etc so the United States wants this half of the world to be considered you know their stomping grounds so i'm just you know i'm pausing because that's you know i wanted to sort of think about that concept right that the people who were south of the united states essentially were open to be exploited by the united states and the monroe doctrine is saying you know the european powers need to stay out you have the rest of the hemisphere, you have the Eastern Hemisphere, we want the Western Hemisphere. So even though Europe had already colonized in the Western Hemisphere, right, this is a this is after a lot of the independence movements throughout Latin America. So a lot of these countries are becoming independent of Spain and are working on that. So the United States wants to be able to step in and then become the beneficiaries of all those natural resources. So the corollary to the Monod Doctrine is specifically talking to these countries within Latin America and the Caribbean, whereas the Monod Doctrine is talk is the United States talking directly to Europe. And it's also important to note that an amendment was made to Cuba's 1901 constitution, which gave the United States the right to intervene in Cuban affairs. And that was because of the Treaty of Paris from 1898, I believe. So Cuba was lumped in with that, as well as Guam, the Philippines, and Hawaii. And it's important to understand where the United States is economically in 1904 when the Monroe Doctrine goes into effect. And essentially, it's just the United States telling these people, hey, you know, (laughs) you're ours, kind of, right? And if we decide to intervene, we will, but it's not because we wanted to type thing. But in 1904... Slavery has only been outlawed in the United States for, you know, roughly 40 years. So a lot of people who were enslaved are still alive. But I want you to think about what that means for the economy. The United States was able to create its economy and a lot of its market economy because of slavery. But now that they've outlawed slavery, they have to find new ways in their mind of generating that revenue on the backs of other people. So that's where the imperialism comes in. A lot of the natural resources throughout Latin America, and I'm not going to pinpoint specifically which had, you know, which area had what, but 
throughout, I mean, throughout Latin America and the Caribbean. So from the U.S.-Mexico border south, right? Just even just mainland Americas. So Central and South America. There is Henneken, petroleum, copper, bananas. Let's see what else. We have guano, cattle, rubber. Like there's so much that is... Of in the eyes of the United States available to them to use the same principles that your the European colonizers have put throughout Africa and Asia, but use those same methods here in the Americas. So using the people who are already there in those countries and then have them extract the resources and make us the beneficiaries of that. So something that I don't know if I've talked about before in on the podcast, I'm sure maybe I have, but the encomienda system had been practiced throughout Latin America, throughout Spanish occupied, you know, Latin Americas. And essentially the encomienda system is like a draft labor, it had a lot of draft labor practices. So people would do labor for a certain period of time in groups that would benefit that would do like public works projects or building people's homes for the you know these their Spanish overlords, etc. So the concept of moving the labor to somebody else or having a group of people who are constantly producing for you is not a new concept. In this case, the United States is saying again, thinking that a lot of these countries or understanding that a lot of these countries are already have already done their independence movements from Spain, the United States understands that the infrastructure of these countries, some of it, a lot of it has been damaged because the Spanish destroyed it on their way out of the country, but that this is how these people have principally been occupied this whole time. So it's not going to be a new concept for them to do work that would benefit, you know, another nation in that, in the previous case, Spain, and now the United States. What they're up against is a lot of these Latin American revolutionaries, of course, don't want to do that. They understand that this is just moving from one oppressor to the other. What was the point of kicking out the Spanish if we're just going to have the Americans now step in and essentially do the same thing? Now, the point of the Roosevelt corollary, in my mind, is telling these people that we're watching them, we as in the country, right? They, that the government, the American government is watching them. It also is a flag to the European nations to say, again, kind of like with the Monroe Doctrine from 1823, we've got it. We'll take care of any opposition that we have here because the the United States has been expanding its military and especially its Navy during that same time period because they understand that an integral part of capitalism and imperial capitalism is going to be spending a lot of money cultivating a military and having a military that is available on land and by sea. And of the all the natural resources that are within Latin America, a lot of these are things that any industrializing nation would need, especially at this time period we're talking about. So the turn of the 20th century, you know, the telegraph and telephone lines are starting to go in and they're being expanded. So you need copper for that, right? Mexico has a huge amount of copper. So essentially what the United States does is goes and tries to make deals with a lot of these Latin American countries and make deals to be able to own an overwhelming majority of the natural resources that are in the land. So whatever's extracted and whatever's in the land. 
with the case of Mexico, it's going to be 85%. And I know I have talked about that on the podcast before, but the United States says, okay, we want 85% of the natural resources that come out of the ground, and we want to own 85% of the natural resources that are still yet to be extracted. Now, a lot of these countries, you may think, okay, well, that's a terrible deal, right? Why would they make a deal for 85 you know, to give 85% away and keep 15%. Again, a lot of the infrastructure was destroyed by the Spanish on their way out. So a lot of these countries have the natural resources to make money for themselves, but they don't necessarily have a way to get it out. They don't have a way to extract it. And something that I was talking about in one of my classes a couple days ago was that, you know, a lot of these nations have treaty alliances and trade agreements. So, When it comes to, you know, even if these Latin American countries had said, you know what, we'll just take the time to build the infrastructure and extract it ourselves, that doesn't mean that they'll be able to sell it on the open market, even though it's necessary and even though other countries need it. So, you know, Germany offers to buy a lot of oil from Mexico, which is a conflict of interest. (laughs) If you understand history and that time period, you understand why that would be a conflict of interest in the next coming decades. But um, they, if they didn't do business with the United States, the U.S. would have just tried to make sure and would have made sure that nobody else would buy from those countries themselves. And so that's the same thing I was explaining to my class that happened with Haiti, right? This is a nation of people that liberated themselves from their French oppressors. And even though they had all those natural resources that made it the richest country in this hemisphere, so between the Caribbean and mainland Americas, they were relegated to being one of the poorest nations because nobody would buy their products, right? So the French made sure that all of their friends and alliances, etc., would not do business with Haiti. And so they were not able to make money for themselves. So the same thing likely would have happened with a lot of these Latin American countries. So getting 15%, I guess, from their point of view was better than getting none of it. And there's a lot of corruption that's in that a lot of these officials and um, people who are in leadership positions in these Latin American countries were keeping that 15% for themselves and, you know, spending it on their families and their friends. It wasn't benefiting the majority of these people, which is why there's a second revolutionary wave, especially starting in the mid 19 teens to get rid of the U.S. backed leaders of these Latin American countries. But when you look at the language of the Monroe Oh, excuse me, of the Roosevelt Corollary, it is very paternalistic because the United States is referring to these people and saying, oh, well, um, we know that you have it within you to become a wealthy nation and to practice the primary laws of civilized society. And we'll treat you in a spirit of cordial and helpful sympathy. Like it is very much looking down their nose, even though these countries have been around much longer than the United States. Again, um, you know, the U S was only able to acquire, although it hadn't even acquired, no, I'm sorry. They just had it by 1904, but they had just acquired, you know, the last stretch of the Pacific are now the U S Pacific, the West from Mexico. So, They're looking down their nose on these people while also relying on them for business. Even today, with our 
politics and the way that people discuss Mexico and Latin American countries in general is very much from a point of view of like, we're doing you a favor. And it's like, no, this is a mutually beneficial relationship. The U.S. and Mexico make a lot of money together. So whenever you hear rhetoric on the TV or on the news that it's talking about, oh, well, you know, Mexico this, Mexico that, and like in a derogatory way, that's really just fluff to incite people, but it's, it's not gun. It's not going to manifest itself in any reality. The money that's made across the U S Mexico border is too great to be stopped by any political party in this country because it benefits both countries and it largely benefits us between the two. And the important thing from reading this from the point of view of those who are living in the United States at the turn of the 20th century Any turn of the century is a huge deal for the populace of civilian people. And even, I guess, for people who are in the military. But I'm thinking about people who are just living on the ground, day-to-day, going to work, etc. 1900 is a huge year around the world. Paris has its World Fair. 1900, that's where they put up the Eiffel Tower for the first time. Um, This turn of the century is also very important for a lot of people thinking about, especially in the Western quote unquote nations, thinking about what's the next phase of modernity and how are we going to industrialize and, you know, like build a capitalist system and how are we all going to benefit in society and prosper from it. So there's already a lot of buzz in the early 1900s, and that includes 1904 with the Roosevelt Corollary. So The United States, again, understands that they need to have a ready supply of people to exploit the resources from in order to make money from it. They can no longer, you know, rely on slave labor. They've also been dealing with the rise of white working class people fighting to unionize their labor. So they're going to now export those same ideals and use another group of people to do that. There are people at this time in Latin America, like I said, who are willing to sell out their populations to get whatever little bit of profit from this agreement that they can. So that's a necessary part of the equation. But a lot of the buzz surrounding modernity and nation building and building a middle class, et cetera, the things that we think about even today that are you know, seen as middle class life in this country and things that we're supposed to just come to expect from a modernized, quote unquote, civilized society is that these types of legislation also make the American civilian population think that these other nations need us, that they need us to intervene militarily, that they need us to create a system of democracy, justice, or law in their nations, that they need us to regulate them, that they need us to be their fathers and mothers. When you look at a lot of the political cartoons from this same time period, it's very much the same way. So you have Uncle Sam, who's generally you know the male representation of the United States, And Columbia would be the female representation of the United States. And in some of these cartoons, you see her as well. They're taking care of these Latin American countries as if they're children or babies. And in a lot of the political cartoons, they are drawn as babies and children. Again, even though they're much older nations and much older civilizations than the United States. But to the civilian populace who, you know, arguably even today don't know where these countries are on a map, which is a whole nother discussion. They don't know any of that. They're not learning the history of these peoples that does not start with us 
intervening. They're not learning about the cultural heritages of these nations and how long they've been around and all of the great achievements of their pre-contact societies, you know, even you know, before 1492 in the Americas, but even before the 1400s within Africa or Asia, right? Like all of these old world civilizations or indigenous civilizations, they had their own history and things going on. So when you don't know that, it's easy to buy into this rhetoric that the government is telling us about these people, even though it doesn't seem like that's what's being done. Because with the political cartoons, with the poetry being made, thinking about Richard Kipling's poem, The White Man Burden, when you look at all the things that are coming out about the Pacific, islands, Latin America, the Caribbean at this time, it very much seems like a call to the West and a call to the United States in particular to come take care of these people so that they can realize their potential. And in the Roosevelt Corollary, it's also said, right, that they want to help them essentially reach their potential. So that is a very paternalistic point of view to take, especially for a country like the United States, again, that is much younger and has had a lot more recent instances of oppression, slavery, brutalization than some of these countries did. And of course, for those of us who are you know, military historians or just, you know, read a little bit about the U.S.'s involvement in Latin America, even over the last 50, 60, 70 years, even though the corollary says that the U.S. will only intervene if need be, like, we know that that's not true. It's always seen as important to intervene because, again, we have to have them do our bidding so that we can benefit monetarily. So, that if that means installing the new president or a new dictator or you know helping give them arms and weapons anything that is going to make sure that they hand over that 85%, right? That they hand over what the the leaders have agreed they will give to us. And throughout the history of Latin America and the Americas in general, the people who did not do that whether it be, you know, they made agreements, they agreed that they would give it to the U.S., but then the people weren't going along with it. They, you know, the, the presidents have been replaced, right, in these other countries. The U.S. has intervened militarily, taken out the leadership, and put in somebody who would do it, what we wanted them to do, or would subjugate their people to do what we wanted them to do. When it comes to a lot of the revolutionaries that are doing their work in the 1940s and 1950s and into the 1960s, the United States makes sure that they are exiled to other countries, right? That we put in people who are going to try to squash the revolutionary spirit because, again, that benefits them. Yet they have a lot of support amongst their own populace because, again, think about what it's like for these people on the ground who are doing work for companies and corporations that they know have leadership from America, that they know the money is going to America. And I've talked about this in other podcasts, but, you know, some of these people are being paid in receipts. Some of these people are being paid in U.S. currency, like small amounts of U.S. currency that they can't even convert to use in their own villages, cities, you know, amongst their own peers so that they can cultivate their own businesses. Like there is no chance for them in their own nation to own land and to have a piece of, you know, their independence and what that means for them. They can't have liberty and freedom at the same time. 
And so a lot of these revolutionaries who were trying to get people that are going to be seen as the enemy, by especially by the United States, because, of course, they're an enemy to what we see as the progress of their nation, quote unquote, but really the progress of our nation. If they were going to revolt, then we can't have tomatoes and avocados in the winter. If they're going to revolt, then we can't have, you know, $2 t-shirts, $2 cotton t-shirts. If they're going to revolt, then we can't sell our oil as cheaply as we were, right? Because those agreements that we make with their government are no longer able to be fulfilled because the people who are doing that work on the land in those countries are unwilling to cooperate with that system. And so because our systems were largely predicated on their subjection, it affects our economy as well. And it's also important to note what it's like for these people every day, even when they're not at work. Like in addition to being paid very low wages, being physically beaten on their job and whipped and things like that, they also have a lot of structures of racism that were there when the Spanish occupied, right? We've talked about the Costas and on this podcast, we've talked about the racial hierarchy and the hegemony in Latin America, especially with the subjection of Afro-Latinos and indigenous um, Latinos and Latinx folks throughout the hemisphere. But the United States practicing Jim Crow and segregation, de facto and de jure segregation in the United States, in the North, South, and the West, parts of these countries, excuse me, of these states here, including states that, you know, didn't even allow black people to live in them like Oregon and Montana, we instill those same values there. So when we're talking about these Latin American countries, a lot of them have sizable black populations. And so especially if you have an area that has a majority black population, you know, Now, all of a sudden, these people can't frequent some clubs or social spaces that people from the U.S. do go to because tourism is a big part of this and using these people as a way to create a tourist economy for the U.S. and to make it cheap to go there and visit as U.S. citizens is also part of that conversation. And that's largely, you know, what's been going on in Hawaii and a lot of the resistance to having tourism lately, especially within the last two years of the pandemic is that, you know, a lot of these people who are in these countries, especially the Afro-Latinx people, are not able to go into certain spaces in their own countries. The indigenous Latinx people can't go into certain spaces in their own countries, even if they have the money to frequent those areas. Because now the establishments are maintaining racial rules that say, you know, we don't allow quote unquote colored people into these establishments. So that's going to be another reason why a lot of these folks there in this hemisphere and, you know, the Western hemisphere in Latin American countries are going to be wanting to revolt because they're not able to, again, to have liberty along with their freedom. And they really don't even have freedom because now the U.S. has imposed rules on them that prevent them from having their freedom. And again, when you consider the type of imagery that's being put out about these people, about these groups of people abroad, and the imagery that is being made about them here in the United States, that the civilian population is consuming, even if they don't want to, right? They can see it in the newspapers, they see it on other publications, they see it playing out on their political stage, etc. You have a lot of people who are going to be looking down on these groups of people in their, in their own countries, meaning that 
they're looking down their nose here in the United States and saying, oh, well, look at look at this poor situation happening in Hawaii or all oh, these poor uncivilized people in Cuba or the Philippines or whatever. Now, when those people start migrating to the United States, that is going to be a lot of the reason why a lot of these people are discriminated against. And in fact, when you look at a lot of the political cartoons at the time around these people, they are drawn very, very dark, and they're caricatured in the way that black people are. Now, of course, people within Hawaii, Cuba, the Philippines, etc., some of them are very dark complected because most people have a spectrum of skin color, right? Some people are very light, some people are very dark. But the point is, is that a lot of people in the U.S. at this time haven't seen people from these areas, right? Again, they probably don't even know where these countries are located on a map. So when these people start moving into the nation or to our nation here in the United States, they're already meeting decades worth of propaganda against them to make it seem like there's a reason to segregate them, that they're in the minds of the general public, they're just as deviant as black people. So we need to stay away from them. We don't want to mix with them, et cetera, even though they're not considered, their race is not necessarily considered black, right? They should still be subjugated and subjected to the same type of treatment as the way that the country treats black people. But the United States didn't exactly anticipate that a lot of these people would move to the United States. The goal is to keep them subjugated in their own land and not really have them migrate. But of course, through, you know, commercial exchanges, through globalization, I'm not sure if it would be to globalization 2.0 or 2.5 by then. But just the point is that through globalization, you're going to have a lot of people who are going to be moving to the United States in small numbers especially then and more numbers now, but you know, they're going to be met with a lot of pushback from civilians who don't know where they're from and have only heard, if they've heard anything about their home countries, they've only heard very bad things about it. So that's all I wanted to talk about was the corollary to the Monod Doctrine. If you haven't read it before, I highly suggest it. Like I said, the corollary was written in 1904 you can also read the Monroe Doctrine, which was issued in 1823. They're both very important documents. And especially when you consider the, you know, imperialism that the United States is at the center of today when it comes to these countries, when you think about where we have our military bases stationed at in these countries and some of these territories, what even the areas that are considered territories, right, that they're not free and sovereign countries, they're considered like offshoots of the United States. And if any of you have ever lived in a territory or a place where the United States has a military presence, you can definitely tell, right? There's a lot of things that you can tell when you're being in that area, when you're in these areas. For those of you who don't know about some of the things that have been happening in Hawaii the last two years, I've talked about it on the podcast, but you know, we may have some new listeners, so you can go back and listen to those older episodes. But especially during the pandemic, when a lot of people couldn't travel internationally, Hawaii was one of the only places that American citizens could go that was that was tropical, right? That was like going on a vacation and felt like going international, but technically isn't because they're a state, right? So it's when you think about how some of these areas like Hawaii, I mean, it's a state, but that so much of it has been turned into a tourist destination and what that means for their economy and what it means for the people who live there and for the homeless population, for the water crisis that they're happening, for the 
water that's been contaminated by jet fuel from the military base. Like all these things are very, very important even today, even though it seems like these documents were written such a long time ago, we're still operating under the guise of doing it to protect these people and to protect their interests and to protect our interests, you know, from some foreign thing or some foreign concept or some event that, you know, hasn't necessarily happened. There hasn't been a loosening of that. And when you look at the revolutionaries and when you look at the people who have been doing a lot of work surrounding Filipino sovereignty, Hawaiian sovereignty, Chamorro sovereignty in Guam, um, Cuban sovereignty and the revolution that they had in the 50s, there is a lot of pushback from these people. And there's a lot of people who think, that, especially with Hawaii and a lot of the a couple years ago, there was a lot going on about the telescope that they, I think it was a telescope that they wanted to build, or maybe it was a planetarium, but it was going to be taking more land away from these people. And they've already had, you know, their whole country stolen from them. A lot of people think that it's for the benefit of humanity and for society in general, right? For the world. Well, we need this telescope because it's going to help everybody see space. And they're not considering the fact that, again, the history is that these people have constantly been lied to about how much we were going to take, have constantly had things broken, have um, treaties and agreements broken, I mean, have constantly been told, okay, well, now we need this and you need to give it to us. And because they're territories and states now, they really don't have that much recourse to stop it. So I'm going to go ahead and leave off of this podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening. I really, 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 really appreciate it. And I hope you all have a great rest of your day or evening, whichever you're currently in. And I'll see you on the next episode. Bye.